I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 1. You may note that this morning I'll kind of be moving around a lot up here because I don't have much room for notes. Pulpits must be made for preaching, and that means it needs to be like a, like a landing strip almost, you know? And so I'll do my best. Hopefully I don't drop anything. I neglected earlier also to thank Mr. Nathan Gibbs, pastoral intern of our church, for preaching the past two weeks. I heard his first sermon. I was blessed by it. And I trust that you all were equally so and that the second sermon was likewise a blessing. Please do be praying for him as he continues to study and to preach and to practice his giftedness for the sake of preparation for ministry. The first psalm. This has been called the gatekeeper psalm. And why is that? It's because it's the first psalm in the book of Psalms but also because specifically and thematically it introduces the whole of the Psalms to the heart of God's people. What's the whole point? That we may be holy and happy. That we may be like the blessed man of verse 1. Now, if this is the gatekeeper, it seems as if the gate has two doors. Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 occupying the respective places. In the beginning of Psalm 1, you have blessed is the man. And then at the close of Psalm 2, you have blessed are all who take refuge in him. The second Psalm pointing to the son that we know is Jesus Christ, the Lord of all. I also want to say to you that the first psalm is unique, not only in its substance, but in its structure. It has poetical structure like so many, if not all, of the psalms. It is intentional. It points to you and to your attention great emphases, not only by the words that it says, but in their ordering. And so, if you will, you can even note that you have Two verses, two verses, and two verses that are linked. And it makes sort of an arc. We would call that chiastic structure with the central two verses being of a great emphasis. But I also want to tell you that the first psalm is all about contrast. It's contrasting two specific persons. The righteous man... And then, the unholy man, the righteous man, and the holy man. And when we hear language of holiness, we often ask the question, well, what does that mean? Because I think popular culture would consider holiness to be akin to maybe something like severity, strictness. Maybe the guy who is holy and pious but really no fun. The guy who scarcely smiles certainly doesn't laugh and is rather rigid and hard. But the message of the Bible regarding holiness could not be more different. Holiness equals happiness in the Lord. And this psalm testifies to that. And so this morning... 
three points that I want us to see derived directly from the structure of the first psalm is firstly, holy joy from verses 1 and 2. Holy joy. Verses 3 and 4, holy living. Holy living. And then in verses 4 and 5, the holy destiny. The holy destiny. Holy joy, holy living, and holy destiny. Let us read the word of God, and then we'll pray and open it together. This is God's holy and inerrant word. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is on the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked shall perish. This is God's word. May he add its truth to our minds, to our hearts, and give us comfort through it. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we have heard your voice ringing from eternity and through thousands of years of biblical history that we might this morning gather around it to learn how we ought to live, O Lord, to learn of our great need, O Lord, and to turn to Christ and to be redeemed. Father in heaven, help us, we pray. Help us to hear your word and to receive it. O Lord, have your way in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Blessed is the man. When you hear the word blessed, it may bring other texts of Scripture to your mind. You may have the echo of the voice of Jesus in the Beatitudes. Blessed, 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 blessed again and again and again as Jesus describes what it is to be a blessed person. But do you know what blessed means? Well, here in verse 1, the word that is translated into English as blessed may otherwise be very well translated as most happy. Most happy. One commentator says that the weight of the Hebrew word is this, most untouchably, durably happy and secure. 
is the man. What a wonderful way to start. This psalm is about happiness. In fact, it's pointing us to the reality at the whole of the book of Psalms, all of these prayers, all of these songs, even the laments have at the very core of them the goal of our being a happy people in the Lord. That's where this begins. Happiness. Spiritual happiness in the Lord, the God of heaven. But as the psalmist progresses, he describes what it is to be happy. But the way in which he does it is a bit strange. It's almost certainly not how you and definitely not how I would have probably written it, at least in its order. He begins by telling us what it is to be blessed by telling us what the blessed man does not do. And we have these three groups of three that he uses to describe what the man who is blessed, who's happy and the most happy man, the things he does not do. Firstly, he does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Secondly, he does not stand in the way of sinners. And then thirdly, he does not sit in the seat of scoffers. And you may be saying, well, pastor, I hear the three. That's simple enough. But let me point it out to you. He does not walk. He does not stand. He does not sit. He does not take the counsel. He is not found in the way, nor is he sitting in the seat. He has not company with the wicked, nor with sinners, nor with scoffers. Three courses of three. This is a profoundly emphatic way that the psalmist is describing the spiritual happiness of the most blessed and happy man. And so I want us to consider these in turn, but carefully. I don't want to take all of our time this morning. But I want you to notice that there is a rhythm and there is also a progression. And if you will with me, think of it something like this. Like the steps of stairs going downward. And if I may, not just going downward anywhere, but going downward into a crypt. A place where a sarcophagus or a casket holding a dead body may be. The happier, blessed man does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. What does this mean? It means that he isn't found pursuing the teaching of wicked or unrighteous or scandalous or heretical men or teachers. His ears not bent to the word as to the world as a skeptic's ear is bent, constantly seeking for the next thought, the next movement, the next thing, and listening to false teaching and bad teachers. That's the first thing. It's as if his ears are closed to bad counsel. Words tinged with poison don't enter there. He's a guarded man. Nor does he then sit. And there's progression from from walking, excuse me, to standing. Do you notice that it's going in a bad direction? It's not that he's going faster, it's going slower. In fact, he goes from walking to standing. He's not going to slow down or be bogged down in the mud 
of the counsel of the wicked and be found in the practice of sinning. Some translations, whenever they speak about this second portion of this verse, nor stands in the path of sinners. This is about a lifestyle. It's about a lifestyle. He's not going to listen to false teaching. He's not going to then take it on and be brought away from a godly motion into a life that does nothing regarding godliness. He's guarded once again. Nor does he sit in the seat of scoffers. When Derek Kidner speaks of this, this triplet, counsel, path, seat, he says that it's in these terminologies that his thinking, his believing, and his belonging are all in the hands of the Lord. They're not just given over to the winds of the world, they're not given over to any sort of teaching, but they are protected, they are kept near. And one of the things to simply say yet again is he is most happy because he is not caught in thinking, believing, or belonging to a godless and unrighteous lifestyle. Now there's, a some, there's something we need to pay at least a second of attention to, and it's this. Godlessness and unrighteousness though it may appeal to the flesh and to the taste that you have for the moment, do not and cannot make you happy perpetually. And there is here in the psalm this depiction of the trap of sin and this horrible reality that sin does progress. It begins with the wrong proposition that's contrary to the word of God. It enters the ear, then it enters the heart, and there you are in the midst of it, and you're stuck, and you're standing in it. And you're marked before a watching world because of it. And eventually you've taken up your identity in it, and you're sitting in it on a chair under it as if it is your master. Taking up residence. And a testimony of Psalm 1 is that if you really want to be a happy person, these are not things that you do. But then in verse 2, we're told wonderfully what the blessed man does do. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And don't let this escape your attention. Don't just pass over it. Don't, don't look away. His delight is in the law of the Lord. His joy, his affection, his heart is in the law of the Lord. And some people have asked the question, and I think it's a good one to ask, well, does this simply mean the Ten Commandments? The moral law? Well, I'll say, yes, it does mean that, but it doesn't simply mean just the Ten Commandments. This has in view the broader spectrum of all of what the Old Testament called the Torah, the law, the revelation of God, the first five books at least of the Old Testament and the Bible. And why is this important? And it's because of this. You need to read this verse in this light that the blessed man 
delights to know the Lord as he shows himself to the world. Because that's what the Lord does in the law. He displays his heart in the moral directives of the Ten Commandments. He displays his justice through his actions in history and also in the giving of the law. He displays his love and his kindness to a sinful and fallen creature in that he does not kill them in the moment of their sin. Yet he draws near to them in love and clothes them and feeds them and teaches them and dwells among them in the tabernacle of the people of God, leading them out of bondage in Egypt with a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. He inscribes his word upon a mountaintop on tablets with the promise that it will be chiseled upon the hearts of his people. He stretches out his hand redemptively and saves Isaac, the son of promise, and gives another to die in his place. The blessed man is happy because his delight is in his God. And I love what it goes on to tell us in the second part of verse 2. That on his law he meditates day and night. And I want to give you a little bit of an illustration, and undoubtedly it's imperfect. Okay? All illustrations fail. But this makes me think, because this is a man who delights in something. It makes me think of a young person or someone who's found the love of their life. And they delight in them. Whether it's a young woman a middle-aged woman, an older woman, a young man, a middle-aged man, an older man, indifferent, delighting in the person. To think on them, it's pleasant. The affections are stirred. The mind is stirred. Even the sound of the voice, to think about him, to think about her, to think about the things they say, the touch of their hand, their demeanor, their sweetness, their kindness, their cooking, their art, their musical capacity, whatever it is, And it makes me think also of what happens whenever men and women, filled and overwhelmed with the delight of their love, lose sleep. They just can't quit thinking about him or her. Overwhelmed. Overwhelmed by the love that they have for this other person. There's something of that here. The blessed man, the happy man, delights in the Lord his God as he has shown himself. And he just can't simply quit thinking about him. His heart, his mind is always extended to him. In his laying down and in his rising up, the Lord is on his mind. The Lord is on his heart. So the question is, what is holy joy? How can a person be truly happy? Well, it is through the devotion of a heart which delights in God. Untouchable happiness. If you love God, you love someone that absolutely deserves it and will never ever 
not deserve it. Who you have every reason to love and every reason to delight in and every reason to receive wonderful blessings from and joy that cannot be touched by anything or any person in this world because his love will not be retracted from his people. As we go forward to verses 3 and 4, we read this wonderful illustration about holy living. And we're told about the blessed and happy man. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The blessed man is alive. That's this first wonderful testimony. He's not just described as anything. He's not just described as a swooning lover, overwhelmed in love. No, he's described as a tree. You see, the psalmist uses what's called a simile. Similar to a metaphor, except it points to something and it says, this is like that. He's like a tree, but he's not just any sort of tree. He's a tree that's been planted. And don't just skip over this. This is important. Get your head on this. He's not a wild tree. He's not one of those walnut trees that comes up from a walnut that one of these little red squirrels puts in my garden. Any of you know what I'm talking about? In your flower beds or in your garden? No, no, no. He's a tree that belongs to a gardener, a caretaker, who has a purpose for him. Who's taken this precious living tree and placed it specifically where he wants it. If he's a tree, he's a tree in the hands of a powerful caretaker. But we go on to read, it's not just that he's a tree and not that he belongs to someone who would plant him. But that where he's planted is providential and wonderful and good. Where is he? Well, he is, he's by streams of water. I think we have enough rain in Germany that it does not necessitate a stream, much less many streams, for trees to live. Doesn't seem to be a case. Every time I mow the grass, I'm mowing a few down because I let it grow too long. But here, there's this depiction of a tree that needs to be near water. He's, after all, in a dry and an arid land, but the one that plants him knows what he needs and he puts him near the thing that he needs, and that's water. And trees near water do a specific thing if they grow. The first thing that they do is they put roots down, and secondly, out. They need to access the water. And then they need stability. He's a tree near streams of water in a dry and arid land. And if you think of the context of the Bible, it makes perfect sense why this would be phrased in such a way. Moreover, he's not just any sort of tree, not just a tree that belongs to somebody, and not just one by a waterside to provide shade or whatever, but he's a fruit tree. 
He's a fruit tree, we're told, the blessed man. Not only that he's a fruit tree, but that he yields his fruit in season. He's seasonal. I don't know about you, but I've been learning lots about plants lately. And if you plant them too late, they may bring up fruit. But if it's not in season, the fruit won't come to ripeness. And then you'll have apples all over your yard falling left and right and you're having to throw them away way before they're sweet and your children are picking them up and eating them and saying, Dad, these are bitter and these are sour. These are terrible. You may not be able to relate to it, but come over and you can see it firsthand at our home. This is a tree that has been cared for and planted right at the right time and is being provided for at every step of the way that he might yield his fruit in season because the one who plants him has purpose. He wants to take and enjoy the sweetness of the fruit that flows from this happy man. What a wonderful thing. Not just any sort of tree, but one that does well, one that bears fruit and bears it within Season And we go on to read, whose leaf does not wither. Now, of course, this is an enormous illustration. The simile with its metaphorical weight. But I want you to hear this in these terms. That the holy man is happy. Because he has a God who has a purpose for him, who cares for him, who is sovereign, who in every part of his life brings all these things for the sake of his own good and his own flourishing and his own growth, that he might be a blessing to others like a tree with broad branches to give shade to those who need it and to give food and nourishment to the starving. But also that the blessed man is one that has a God that gives him water in the dry season. Whenever the world affords for nothing. You ever been in a dry season where you just feel like your soul is dried up and you feel like things are going poorly and you just wonder. How am I going to make it? I, I just need a drink. I just, I just need the thirst to be quenched. Well, the God of the blessed man that delights in the person of God is one that has one who gives him streams of living water so that in every season his leaf does not wither. The heat of the controversies and the pains and the struggles of this life cannot take away his joy or his security. It can't get too hot. It can't grow too cold. The wind cannot blow hard enough for a person that loves God and is loved by God and nourished by Him to be put to death, to wither, to fade away, or to do anything short of prospering in every season. That is a huge, wonderful display of what Christian, holy, living is like it's living dependent on a God who gives. The tree didn't get there by himself. 
The tree cannot make seasons come or go. The tree cannot nourish itself for the sake of its own yielding. The tree can't keep its leaves nor produce its own water. It's God that does it. It's God that does it for the Christian. And for the holy and happy person, this remains true. It is a life wonderfully, sweetly reliant on a God who gives love abundantly. Praise be to God. But you remember I said this is a book full and this is a psalm full of contrast and so it is. Verse 4, the wicked are not so. And then another simile. They are like chaff that the wind drives away. You know the husk that's just knocked off easily from the picked wheat or barley that whenever you take and you winnow it by tossing it in the air to drive away the worthless, dead, weightless, waste product, he's saying that's ultimately what the wicked are like. Lifeless, driven about by the wind with no hope of profitable return. You can't plant chaff and grow a thing from it as if it were a seed. It does not, nor can it bear fruit. It's only the sloughed off waste product of fruit from another thing. That's a hard statement, but it's a reality. That the wicked who have a heart that is contrary to God, that hates them, that scoffs at God, that provokes them and rebels against Him, They don't enjoy the same sort of life. They don't enjoy the same sort of care. They don't enjoy the same sort of productivity or security. But can just simply be blown away, blown over by the lightest wind. As you go forward in verses 5 and 6, we conclude with what is the holy destiny. It's always tough to come up with sermon points, especially since, unless you just completely quote the Bible, there's something of the disposal of the minister preaching. But this one, I think, is relatively clear. We're talking about future events in the long course and the arc of things. There is a destiny, and the holy destiny is here listed, but we also have the contrast, and that's where he begins. It's in the contrast. We're not in the garden. We're not by the stream side. Rather, we're in the wind with the wicked. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. And if I skip just a little to the end of verse 6, the way of the wicked perish. You know, it's been said that the long arc of history bends toward justice. And here there's a testimony of that, that wickedness will have its day, and its day is not a good one. That a life lived at odds with God and angry with Him will eventually have to stand before Him, but to His face. 
So we receive his judgment, and it's a definite thing. And so one thing I want to say to you from verse 5 is that the reality of the day of judgment where every man, woman, and child who ever has been, who is, and who ever will be, is definite and is coming. Hear that. The psalmist believes it. It is the day of the judgment with definiteness. And he says that the wicked will not be able to stand. That whenever the piercing eye of God judges the hearts, souls, minds, lives, words, deeds, and acts, and natures of men, no wicked man, no wicked woman, no wicked child will be able to withstand the scrutiny He goes on, nor will sinners be in the congregation of the righteous. The division is coming on the day of judgment where God's people will be declared not guilty in Christ Jesus and those who denied him and rejected him will be put out into outer darkness and into punishment and into eternal torment and pain. That is the uniform testimony of the scriptures. And in Psalm 1, in verse 5, here there is a simple and ancient testimony to the reality of it. And that the way of the wicked will perish. Verse 6, simple. What's the long arc? Well, if it bends towards justice... Justice will simply say, we all deserve death. And if you've been reading with me and listening this morning and paying attention to this sermon, you may say simply this, I want to be happy like that. But if I'm honest, I'm not always. I'm like mercury in a thermometer. I'm up and I'm down. I'm hot and I'm cold. Sometimes I'm a skeptic and sometimes my mind and my heart and my ear, and for some of you, you may say all the time, my ear is bent to the counsel of ungodly and wicked men. I sin all the time. If you were to examine your own heart, if I examine my heart, the best I can simply say is this, I am a terrible sinner. And I know good and well that I scoff. You may hear the description of the man who's happy like the tree planted. And you may think of yourself, well, it doesn't reflect my regular experience. I know dry seasons. In fact, I've lived in dry seasons for a year, two years, months, days, weeks, whatever it is for you. Seasons. Maybe you've lost a loved one. Broken your heart. Caused you to question everything. Maybe... You've gotten into a terrible sin and you fought it and you feel like you're just losing the battle of that sin and it's just overwhelming you and you simply think, I'm just in a dry and weary land, a land of dry bones. Where are my streams of water? Maybe you feel abandoned. Maybe you feel like life is simply one event after another that is just a process of diminishing returns. You can't think of the last time you bore spiritual fruit. 
You feel like all your leaves have withered and they've fallen off and you're something of a bald oak, hickory, cypress, or pine. And you're listening to the psalm and you're saying, this sounds wonderful, it sounds pie in the sky, but it's just not what I have. I don't feel the prospering. I don't feel this. I feel withering. And when you read verse 5 and 6, Pastor, it scares me and I'm trembling in my seat. Because maybe you've heard the words of the 130th Psalm. O Lord, if Thou should mark iniquity, who could stand? And you're honest about yourself and you simply say, I'm a sinner. And before His scrutiny, I have little hope of my own. Well, I want to point you to something. And it's this. That the blessed man of verse 1, that most happy man, who every single day of his life has delighted in the law of the Lord, who was happy to lose sleep and to rise up, in consideration of the person of God, who was like and is like a tree and who is planted and who did and has and always will yield fruit and who can never wither even under the weight of death, even for a short time, lives, exists, and hears your cries for mercy. The blessed and most happy man of verse 1 of the first psalm is also the son of the second psalm. This points to Jesus, the one who in every way has a heart for God. And who, if we believe in and put our faith in, gives us free access to all of these blessings Yes, even to sinners like you and like me, simply by believing on Him. And we can have this assurance, and we can have this hope, and we can have these blessings if we know Him, and we can have the security of verse 6 and its first portion. That the Lord knows the way of the righteous. Do you know what that means? This is Old Testament language of near fellowship, of closeness. The closeness that a spouse may feel to the other spouse. Intimate, wonderful, sweet, loving closeness. And it's saying simply this, that the Lord knows and has closeness wonderful intimacy, sweet relationship with the righteous. And that is with Jesus and all of those who are called His body by faith in Him. Who have been forgiven of a multitude of sins in the past and in the present and in the future. Who will be redeemed by Him and who will be declared on that day where the wicked are divided from the righteous. Who though you and I know the whole weight of our sins can simply say this. I am in him and his righteousness is mine. 
And now we may be known and loved by the God of heaven, reconciled. And so believer, if you feel the weight of all of that struggle of not feeling happy and blessed and delighted, I want to point you once more to Jesus, the one in whom you can know all of this happiness, delight, and joy, this holy joy, this holy happiness, this untouchable, unshakable blessedness by faith in him. And if you don't know him and you're sitting with us this morning and you simply say, I want all of that, I want to tell you it is as simple as simply saying, I need him, I want him, Jesus is my Savior. Humble reliance upon him. To simply say, I want to be planted in him. I want to yield fruit in him. I want my leaf to not wither in him. I want to prosper in him. This could be the day of salvation. To simply say, Jesus is my Lord and my Savior and I need no other. Not even what I can do. And against all of the things that I have already done that are abhorrent in the sight of God. Will you have Christ? And believer, will you rejoice in him? Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. O Lord, for all of its mercies and kindness. O Lord, for its holy illustrations that paint the picture of your heart and our hearts and the heart of Jesus. O Lord, help us to know him and to love him. O Lord, and to hope in you and to be received by you, O Lord, and to enjoy all of your gifts. Our Father in heaven, bless us as we go forth. O Lord, bless us as we continue to worship. O Lord, gather us in as your children. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.